My name is Nabil Ayers. I am the author of the new memoir, My Life in the Sunshine. I'm the president of the Beggars Group of Record Labels and a recovering drummer. And I'm Ayana Contreras. In his new book, Nabil outlines his search for a deeper connection with his father, jazz musician Roy Ayers, as well as the arrangement that led to his birth. So the deal, or the arrangement, as people now seem to like to call it, is that my mother was 20 when she met my father. She lived in New York. She had kind of a hard childhood and I think knew that she wanted to be a young single mother and she wanted to give a child the childhood that she never had. That was her thing. That still is her thing. I talk to her all the time and we're really close. She met my father at a jazz club. She was with my uncle, who's a jazz musician. And the moment she met him, she said, this is the person I'm going to have a child with. Not this is the person I'm going to be with or this is the person I'm going to marry because she actually wasn't that interested in a relationship. She wanted a child and she thought that he was handsome and kind and charismatic and didn't drink or do drugs and sort of had this list of criteria. So they dated, in air quotes, a few times and she said, will you be the father of my child? You do not have to be part of our lives. And he agreed. And so I've always known that story. So of course, there are issues and there are things I get into in the book, but he didn't leave us. There wasn't a divorce. He was never part of my life. So it didn't really feel like he was missing. But that's, that's where it all begins. Yeah. You know, books have two different purposes, right? Like, I mean, maybe more than two. For a, a, a memoir in particular, it can be extremely cathartic, um, can help you work out your own history, and can also be enlightening to the reader, I think, in some ways. And I think this book is exceptionally good at probably doing both. It seems like me reading it is like, oh, my goodness, this man went through some things. <laughs> Even just in writing this book and documenting some of these, like, you know, those parts of your history that maybe you try not to harp on. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? It seems yeah. like that's what you really dug into a lot of. Yeah, it's interesting that you got that because that's absolutely true. I mean, I when I was writing it, I was interviewing my mother and listening to records and doing all I could to kind of put myself in scenes from 20, 30 years ago or from childhood. And that was really fun. But then what would happen is something would happen. I'd find a new cousin or someone would email me or something very current would happen. And so sometimes I was writing about these old things and sometimes I was running back from like just going to the cemetery to meet my grandparents to see their grave with my new aunt. And I was sitting in a hotel room just typing as fast as I could trying to to get down on the page what had happened just like an hour ago. So it was a real mix of sort of research and writing. Right. And this particular book, it is very um, chronological in the way that it's it's formatted. But mm-hmm. obviously life is not – you want to think life is chronological, <laughs> but the way we unpack our own stories often isn't as chronological as maybe we remember it. Right. Yeah, it definitely is. Obviously, it starts the moment my mother meets my father, and it ends about a year and a half ago when I when I finished the book. But, but so much happened while I was writing it that it certainly didn't feel like I wrote it chronologically. I didn't start at the beginning and end at the end. It was really all over the place because that's how things were happening in real time. Right. Um, I think the hook for a lot of people with this book is your last name, Ayers. Right. Which Mm -hmm. is a reference to your father, Roy Ayers. But notably, for the first like 18 years of your life, that was not your last name. Right. Right. I was born with the name Braufman and changed it to that name when I went away to college. Right. 
which I thought was so interesting because you're very forthright in the book to say that you didn't really have a substantive relationship with your father, although you knew he was your father Mm -hmm. for your upbringing, most of your upbringing. And you took this name, which kind of because of the way your face looks would make people (laughs) automatically anybody who has any like, you know, cursory familiarity with your father would say. Mm hmm. Is, are you related to Roy Ayers? Yeah, happens all the time. Right. But it's like you created that situation in some ways. Right. So how do you feel about your it's, 18-year-old person making Yeah, it's because 18-year-old me had no idea that would be the case because 18-year-old me lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Roy Ayers was not a thing. No one ever asked me about him there. Um, and this, would, this was in like 1989. So at the time... In my head, my father was famous in the 70s, but now he was probably almost 50. Like, that's you're not going to be a famous rock star or, you know, whatever star at that age. So it just didn't really occur to me that, of course, he would have this incredible resurgence and be sampled and be revered for so long. So I never imagined that this would be happening, but it, it started happening soon after that and has happened ever since. So why did you do it? Why did you change your name? I think it's because... It was the only name I actually had a connection to. I mean, Braufman was my grandparents' name, my mother's name, and she'd changed her name, not legally, but for work, um, just because it's a long story, but she was working in a position where she had to use her name a lot and found it really difficult to keep spelling Braufman, B-R-A-U-F-M-A-N, have people misspell it, ask about it. And she just said to me, look, now's a really good time. You're going away to college. You're moving to a different city. Think about this. It can be a much easier life. Is is there a name that you like? And Ayers is the only one I have any connection to. So I think I thought about making up a name, but that felt a lot weirder than the one that at least there is a real connection to. That's so interesting because I forget about that concept where you can theoretically you could change your name to whatever you want. <laughs> I know, right? You know, I mean, I think a lot of people who have unusual names because you grew up with a name that in your scene was unusual, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Um, they tend to lean towards less common right. names. I know for me, I was really adamant to keep my name by any means necessary, but it's unusual. Like mm-hmm. most people will come up with some kind of like. <laughs> But in this case, it's that's kind of what happened with your last name, though. So you wanted to go to something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was on your Instagram, mm-hmm. and I saw you had a picture of yourself with James Spooner from Afropunk, back yeah. when Afropunk was Afropunk. Right. So you've known him for a while, we, I'm guessing. We, yeah, we met through mutual friend a while ago, like six or seven years ago in New York, um, and really, like, connected, and I remember it was the first time I ever, because we're both biracial or multiracial, it was the first time I'd heard the term, he said someone was touched by the brush. And I remember thinking, like, whoa, I've never heard that. That's a weird term to talk about someone who had some black blood in them. Um, but then we kind of lost touch, and recently that same friend got back in touch, and she was like, oh, my God, you guys are both publishing books kind of on the same subject matter at the same time. James's book just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's called The High Desert, and mine just came out last week. So, yeah, we're back in touch and hanging out. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, I, I bring up James Spooner because I remember, well, one big part of your book, right, is coming to terms with being a person of color who is in love with rock music where the people don't look like you and MTV is not reflecting the reality of, like, mm-hmm. you know, what you love and what you're passionate about of making a space for you. Right. Like you didn't see yourself in the music, right? And every time I think of James Spooner, I think about back in the day when Afropunk was like niche, mm-hmm. 
bloggy, like, no, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I was teaching youth, and there was this young black kid who was totally into rock and had the nose piercing and all the jazz. And this was before he knew that there was, like, a whole world of people wow. like that. And I was like, you should check out Afropunk. Uh-huh. You know, and he did, and his life was different. Wow, that's incredible. Oh, my God. I felt so good for him. That's because great. This was back when Afropunk was. Yeah, I yeah. keep saying that because <laughs> now it's just like Coachella for black people, kind of. With <laughs> right. some and, and, rock white, and white people, too. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's yeah. true now. But I mean, yeah. it, I mean, it's very commercialized. Right. And, it was uh, pretty counterculture yeah, in the beginning. That's really sure. what, it, what it was. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's also a part of this book that I don't know that necessarily people are going to gravitate towards as mm-hmm. much. But I do think that that part of the thing of finding space for yourself and not just that making space for yourself in that world is also really like, it's an interesting thing. Like, I, there's certain scenes that just really resonate with me. Obviously, I've mentioned it once, but the the MTV thing, mm-hmm. right? Kind of going back, because it's like your experience watching, like, nothing but Billy Ocean and maybe Prince. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, very little representation. Right. MTV was, yeah, it was so white when I, I got, I got it in 1982. It was a year old, and I loved it, and I devoured it, but it was pretty much all white artists. Yeah. Which, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that, right? Um, it, it's just like, I mean, looking back, I don't I don't make excuses for people, but it was one of those things where, as you know, as a record label person, it's like they're putting money where they think the money is. Right. Mm-hmm. This is what the audience wants. Right. Right. Until BT comes out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or until Michael Jackson drops Thriller. <laughs> well, that too. But yeah. then, I mean, he was a, he was an artist that they felt like they could play mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, we can get into that. That's a different book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thinking about that space, but I also think about the really adorable vignette where your mother sets you up with the kiss makeup uh, the makeup <laughs> yeah. of the kiss drummer and then you actually put the photo on your instagram I'm like that doesn't look anything like him no. but <laughs> like like the kiss drummer or like, yeah well i need yeah like i the, needed a wig right that was really no i mean well, well let's let's tell the story for people yeah. right so you're how old were you at the time i was probably seven or eight because my mom took me to see kiss at madison square garden when i was seven which mm-hmm. i remember well and it was truly like a life-changing moment um but yeah then i think i i was Kiss. I was one of the Kiss members, Peter Chris. I think for Halloween with like you know a cheap drugstore mask and like a cape or whatever. But then my mom was like, I think we could get some makeup and like really do it. And so we tried to do it. I mean, yeah, there's a picture on my Instagram. It's me. I was a drummer already at the time at seven. I started playing drums at two and a half, and uh, it's me with a full face of Kiss Peter Chris makeup on and a really lumpy like <laughs> out of bed afro. Uh, sitting at a drum set, smiling, wishing I was in Kiss. I'm Ayanna Contreras for Vocalo, and I'm speaking with record label executive and author Nabil Ayers. His book is entitled My Life in the Sunshine. Why were you attracted to Kiss? Right. It was such a weird thing, because like we were just talking about, this is before MTV, but we had lots of different records. I mean, I was always around music when I was a kid, and it was, you know... I remember LaBelle and I remember Seals and Crofts and Stevie Wonder and the Beatles and, you know, a pretty good mix of people, John Coltrane. But I remember looking at all these records and especially at that age, really spending a lot of time looking at them and thinking, I don't look like any of these people. I have a black father and a white mother. 
sure, I kind of have an afro, but like Stevie Wonder's is tighter than mine and his skin is darker and look how like perfectly round it is. And the Beatles, of course, like so pale and the straight brown hair. Like, I don't know how I'm going to be in a band if I don't look like that's these are people who are in bands. I don't look like them. Like, I think that was the very simple young brain. But I think that's a real thing. In lots of people, I think people who want to do something, whatever it is, identify with those who are doing it. And you try to find someone that looks like you because that's the easy way to see here's who I fit in. I could be in this band or I could be with these people. And I didn't see that. But weirdly for me, Kiss, who I knew were white men, of course, and my mom used to brag that they were Jewish. She was really excited about that. I just saw them as like, I could do that. I could look like that because that's just makeup. And so in a weird way, that was the thing that kind of made me feel like I could belong. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I also think that's a theme of your book, like finding ways to belong mm-hmm. in a whole bunch of different spaces and places. And yeah. Sometimes it was because you're wearing like like the right polo shirt. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was because, you know what I mean, like all these different reasons. But I think ultimately... I, what also drew me to the story of the book was um, this concept of, like, <sighs> what is it to not feel like you have the right to identify as something that is your birthright mm-hmm. because it doesn't feel true to you? Meaning, why would I ever feel like I can't belong to something? I should be able to belong to everything. Is that kind of what you're Well, I saying? think you should belong to whatever you think you belong to, to right. a certain extent. I mean, you know, I get it. It's like, well, my experience is not that experience, mm-hmm. so maybe I'm not that. Right. But no, I think I know what you mean. I mean, when I was a kid, of course, I couldn't have this knowledge, but me loving this music, loving what it sounded like, loving what it made me feel like should have been enough for me to say, great. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be one of these people. But instead, because I didn't look like those people, there was this big doubt that hung over me. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you could play it that way. I think there's a couple of different plays here. But even the flip of that where it's like, I don't know if I should call myself black Mm. because Mm -hmm. my reality doesn't reflect what I think that reality is. But it's like, I mean, you call yourself what you want. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I and, mean. And it depends on what, what room you're in or what room I'm in. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. So that's also the, the ambiguity is also interesting. That's that's a privilege to be able to walk in a room and it's like, it's weird because it's like, what is that person? Which is a horrible concept, but it's real. <laughs> it's so real. Yeah. But literally because of the nature of migration, the nature of the history of the world, you mm-hmm. could be Right. And then you throw in my name, which is Middle Eastern, which which my mom and uncle just got from a book that they loved, mm-hmm. but of course makes a lot of people lean that way. I mean, in the Uber on the way here, the driver asked me where I'm from, which happens all the time in Ubers because my name is sitting on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's interesting. I don't know. I was just talking to somebody um, upstairs and I was like, you know, most African-American people um, are, they said on average, only 75% African. Right. That's wild. That's crazy, right? That's like wild. Yeah. Right. And and that's, is that largely because of slaves? And right. The, I mean, we know why. It's, a, it's not because of Loving Day. Unfortunately, <laughs> no, that's that not. That took a lot longer to come. It took longer yeah. for that to happen, yeah. Yeah. So, but thinking about that and thinking about sort of 
where we come up with what is this and what is that and like these hard lines. It's like I I don't think any people it like people of African descent in the United States of America are as you know cut and dry right as we want to believe right. It's it's literally not black and white like everyone wants to think it is. And it's interesting, too. I mean, I think a big chunk of this book and a lot of your formative years were in Salt Lake City, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. kind of homogeneous, kind of kind of I just picture like, I don't know, dirty blonde people. They're not dirty, but they're like dirty. Blonde <laughs> yeah, they're like slightly. Yeah, not California blonde, yeah, but blonde. A little yeah. lighter. Yeah. I, I, I picture those folks just kind of walking around and then you walking around, <laughs> you know, like like. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so funny. We, so I was there a few nights ago. I did a reading at a store in Salt Lake City, which was really fun because I spent a lot of time growing up there. And, and it's a big part of the book. So I wanted to make sure I went. And it was great. It was at a great bookstore. And the reading was really crowded. And the woman who was kind of my conversation partner, this woman, Liz, is half black, half Korean. And it was amazing because she started by talking about she, – she runs the Utah Black History Museum, which is this really great mobile museum. It's a long story. But uh, – so she was talking about the black history in the state and how the state is still only about 2% black. And then she looked out in the crowd. And I think there were about 50 people there. And I saw one black person. It's like the math works out to exactly 2%. We're still here. Oh, that's funny. I thought you were going to say, and all of those people are in this room right <laughs> no, now. I did not make it the other night. Oh, man. I think part of why that is such a formative time, and this is, you know, armchair, you know, book reader, is that there was so much like cognitive dissonance between your reality before that point. Right. Living in, you know, New York, the dirty apple in the 70s and into the early 80s, like is a very different place, like starkly different place, you know, and then. Going on to be in was it Massachusetts? Yeah, Amherst, which which at the time where we lived was just so in a great way, just so sort of diverse and idyllic, and so many kids with single parents, and so many kids of different races and mixed races. So that's what was interesting about going when we moved to Salt Lake City. I was ten, but I had ten years of never being the weird kid. Mm-hmm. I fit in everywhere I was because everyone was sort of like me in a way. And then in Salt Lake, of course, it was like, whoa, I am different. Right. Yeah. In all of the ways. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting. And you weren't Mormon. Not right. to say everybody's Mormon. Right. But, but it was I think it was six Salt Lake itself, which is the least Mormon city, was sixty percent at the time. That's still, still a lot. A solid majority. Yeah. Moving back to New York, going full circle, mm-hmm. how did it feel the second time around? Like did you feel immediately anything? I felt like I really did feel like I was home. I lived so after Salt Lake City, I went away to college in Seattle and stayed there for another 15 years after that. So a really long time. I'm well into my 30s and I moved to New York in 2008. And Seattle, I loved Seattle, but Seattle's a very white city, or at least Seattle feels like a very white city. And in my sort of indie rock record store band world was very white. We live in Brooklyn, baby. So moving to New York and moving to Fort Greene in Brooklyn, which which to me was then and still is a very mixed neighborhood in a, in a way that feels natural and real, just felt like almost like a bit sad and regretful. Like, this is amazing, 
I wasn't thinking about this for the last 15 years, and I wish I had. Maybe I would have moved here sooner, or maybe I would have changed my life somehow in Seattle, but it feels so much more comfortable, and I feel so much more at home, not among people who are like me, but kind of like Amherst, among people who are just all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's where I feel most at home. I think also the ability to be sort of anonymous. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe. Like you know, no, nobody asking where I was from. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. To wrap up, the the little poll quote on the front of the book says, ultimately redefines what it means to be a family. That's what the book says um, on the cover. And I'm and I guess I guess. Yes, maybe. I don't know, because, you know, the other character in this book that we haven't mentioned is DNA testing. Sure. Which I think came in clutch in a (laughs) whole lot of these connections. So thinking 20 years ago, a lot of these connections wouldn't have even been possible. Totally. Because that's the other part. Like, I mean, I think, you know, the lead of this of this book is that you are searching for your father. But what really happened was you did find like kinfolk, mm-hmm. skinfolk, kinfolk yeah. that were happy to be with you and right. be around you that you didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that growing up, your uncle was your father. I oh, mean, yeah. you can say whatever. I, no, I hundred percent agree. Yes. So I don't. I don't want people to walk away saying, "Oh, little Oliver Twist, he exactly. had nobody but his mommy." I feel like you had. <laughs> No, that, that's the whole thing. And I spend so much time talking about this. And that, that to me, I hope the book does this. But I mean, on paper, my childhood was so terrible, right? Young, single mother, black father who's not in the picture. We were on welfare, all these things. And it was incredible. It was a wonderful childhood. We had everything we needed. My uncle was a huge part of our lives. He was my father figure. figure and everyone we knew was in the same boat, seriously. So it wasn't like, oh, we don't have anything, but everyone else has this or that. This was... I had a really great idyllic childhood. And it was like the 70s and 80s. Like the yeah. 70s was different, especially when we were a little kid. <laughs> yeah. It was just, it was it was rougher. <laughs> yep. It was okay. Well, one of my friends last night was saying to me, you know, don't mess with um, Gen X people because they know 12 ways to get blood out of a shirt. <laughs> <And> <laughs> they know how to, you know what I mean? Like they know how to like, right. you know, take care of business. It's true. You used to like go do crazy things and whatever that was, throwing rocks at each other, you know, <laughs> obviously riding bikes with no helmets. I mean, just like you, we would just go out and play and come back when it was dinner time and things were okay. Feral. Yeah. Now they call them feral. That was for us. That was the usual thing. We had keys. Yeah. To everything. <laughs> yeah. Latchkey kids. Yep. Record label executive and author Nabil Ayers. His book is entitled My Life in the Sunshine. I'm Iona Contreras for Vocalo. <laughs> 